Hey, shortwavers, this holiday season, we have a little present for you. It features an astronaut who we really admire. Ellen Ochoa, she's made history many times over. She was the first Hispanic woman in space and spent 30 years at NASA, first as a research engineer, then an astronaut. She eventually became head of the Johnson Space Center. Even with this long and distinguished resume, I think one of the most amazing things about Ellen's career is how she responded to a moment of crisis, changing NASA's workplace culture in the aftermath of the 2003 Columbia shuttle disaster. Today, we bring you an excerpt of her conversation with Guy Raz, host of the podcast, Wisdom from the Top. Have a listen and enjoy. I guess it was 1985 when you decided to apply to be an astronaut with NASA. First of all, where did that idea even come from? How are you, why were you even thinking about that? Well, so in 1981, this was uh, sort of the end of the, my first year at Stanford. Uh, that was when the shuttle flew for the first time, April hmm. 1981. Yeah. And that, that made huge news. I mean, uh, the U.S. hadn't flown in space in a few years. And, of course, this was just a completely different kind of spacecraft than it had ever flown before. It wasn't a little capsule. You know, it was this sort of big, beautiful spacecraft that looked like an aircraft. And it had the capability of doing so many different kinds of things. And a lot of what it was going to be doing in space was science research. And uh, a couple years later, uh, when I was right in the middle of my PhD, Sally Ride flew in space. And that was a huge deal. Um, you know, people often ask, hey, did you want to be an astronaut from the time you were a little kid? And I said, well, you know, I grew up in the Apollo era, and of course everybody was talking about it, but nobody would ever ask a girl, do you want to grow up to be an astronaut, or, you know, why don't you think about doing that? So, you know, it was a big deal in 78 when the first women astronauts were selected, and now finally the first woman was flying, and of course that was followed by other women in the class. And I could also relate a little bit to Sally also because she had gone to Stanford, which is where I was at the time. She had been a physics major, which had been my majors in undergrad. And really, those things made a huge amount of difference to me because if that hadn't been the case, I just don't think I could ever, ever have pictured myself doing something similar. <laughs> so about that time, NASA was talking about selecting another group of astronauts. And some of the other grad students were saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to fill in an application and, and send it into NASA. <laughs> and I remember asking, is that how it works? You know, like you just fill out an application and send it in. I mean, I had no idea at the time how astronauts were selected or anything like that. And so that was really the first time that I, I actually wrote NASA and asked them to send me, you know, the information about how you apply. And a couple years later in 85, when I actually got my degree, I sent in my application to NASA. But of course, knowing how many people actually apply, Really, I never expected to hear anything back from NASA. So, of course, I had looked for and interviewed um, other jobs for PhD researchers, and I had taken a job at Sandia National Labs in Livermore to join a research group there. Okay, so the first time you applied to NASA, uh, you you never heard back, and then I, I guess it was in in 1987 uh, you sort of reactivated your application. What happened then? Did you did you get picked? No, I did not get picked. However, I did get the opportunity to go to Johnson Space Center huh. and uh, actually spend a week there and interview in person. 
And uh, what I found out when I showed up was, you know, out of the original few thousand applications, um, they were only inviting a little over 100, maybe 120 people to actually come to Johnson Space Center. So I was pretty excited, actually, to have, you know, already made it that far in the process. And so um, anybody who gets invited to that part spends uh, a week, you know, five days at Johnson Space Center. And one hour of that is the actual in-person interview, but there's also um, tours of some of the training facilities. You get a chance to talk to actual astronauts, which I had never had that opportunity before, to really find out what the job is about. And then, of course, there's extensive medical testing. That's actually what you're doing for most of the week. Hmm. So um, I wasn't selected that year, but I was encouraged to keep my application active for whenever the next time it would be that they would do a selection. Were you disappointed? Were you sad? Do you remember how you felt when you didn't get it? Well, of course, I was I was hugely disappointed, but it, it wasn't that it was... I couldn't say I was expecting to be selected. I mean, so many people apply, so few are chosen, that I didn't see it as a failure because the odds seemed so great to begin with. Yeah. In fact, I kind of viewed myself as... I'm a long shot. I seem so different than most people who, you know, you think of as astronauts, although I would I would try to keep in mind people like Sally Wright and others who, you know, at least had some things in common with me. So as disappointed as I was, I can't say that I felt like I had failed. Yeah. I hadn't been selected. And I, I was encouraged to keep my application active for the next time. And so I did make a couple of decisions. I mean, one thing I learned while I was down there is, you know, almost everybody has a pilot's license, hmm. even though it's not a requirement. But what they really want to see, particularly from someone with my background, when you're a Ph.D. researcher and you spend a lot of time in, your, in a lab and, and writing papers and presenting them, is how do you op- operate in an operational environment? Yeah. Um, Because that wasn't the environment, you know, that I had experience with. And if you go out and you get a private pilot's license, now you're actually learning to operate in an environment that's much more similar to what an astronaut would do. So I went back and, you know, took lessons out of the Livermore Airport and got my private pilot's license. And I also made the decision, I, you know, I had been so excited about, you know, actually being at Johnson Space Center, which just seemed like, you know, the most amazing place where all these human spaceflight milestones had happened. And I decided I really wanted to work for NASA, even if I wasn't selected as an astronaut. And there was a research facility in the Bay Area, um, and they actually had a group that was doing some things similar to what I was doing at Sandia National Labs. And so I made the decision and uh, ended up getting hired uh, at NASA Ames Research Center. So 1990, you reactivate or you keep your application open and you're chosen. You're accepted into the astronaut program <laughs> yes. the third time. Third time's a charm, I guess. Um, what, do you remember what, how you felt when you found out? Oh, yeah. You you never forget that moment. I mean, it's probably the most amazing moment of my life. I was actually, so I was working at Ames Research Center. I was a supervisor. I was actually off-site that day because I was in a sort of a management seminar. And I remember coming out sort of mid-morning 
and uh, you know we just took a 10 minute break or something and as I was coming back in I saw this note taped to the door and it had my name on it and it said Don Putty called give him a call back and he was the person that headed up flight crew operations at Johnson Space Center and he was the one that would be calling <laughs> about the results of the astronaut selection and I just about had a heart attack yeah. I was like I can't believe somebody didn't come inside and get me when, when this person called. Yeah, you can't, I just can't even describe the, that moment because, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's a moment I, that I knew my life would change forever. We'll have a link to Ellen and Guy's full interview in our episode notes. Wisdom from the Top is from Built It Productions and Luminary Media. I'm Emily Kwong, and you're listening to Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR.